Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of our podcast called The Edge. Um, you can now get us across um, all kinds of uh, Amazon, Spotify, all of those podcast platforms, and you can also now listen to us and watch us on YouTube. Um, today, really, really happy to have uh, Nikki Robinson here to talk to us as a guest. Um, been really looking forward to this. Definitely going to get into a bit of lightsaber discussions later on in Star Wars. I know you're a massive fan. Um, but the same with every one of these podcasts. I guess my my first question is always going to be kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get started and how did you end up kind of where you are today and, and writing a book, which we'll get into as well. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And uh, yeah, so I, I think like probably very classic, you know, security story. I started on help desk many, many moons ago um, and, uh, you know, sort of worked my way up through, you know, being a systems administrator, being a systems engineer. Um, I did a lot of work with um, things like Citrix and VDI um, and uh, sort of working on those things. I got really interested in vulnerability management. Um, I started diving deeper into vulnerability scoring and what does this mean? You know, why do I need to remediate highs and criticals? And then, hey, what are those lows and mediums and why are they scored that way? And uh, so so that really spawned my uh, my interest and love of, of research, too. Um, and, and so that was why I got the DSC in cybersecurity, studying vulnerability scoring, and then started making the transition to to be a security engineer and uh, and now a security architect. So it, it was really the love of vulnerability management that pivoted me into a security career. I think it's a really interesting journey because... You see a lot of people trying to break into cyber now, like straight into cyber. Whereas a lot of people we speak to on the podcast, and the same for me and John, is we cut our teeth really on help desks. I think, John, you started off in the same way. You kind of start off on a help desk, you grow. Because security wasn't a thing back then. It, it, it was. It's only really, I mean, it was a thing, but it's now called cyber. It was InfoSec for a while, and it's kind of grown and the vulnerability score, and then you've had the red teaming and the blue teaming, pen testing, you have all of these kind of things grow. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your book. I'm going to have to double check what it's called. It's called Mind the Tech Gap. Yes. Um, I know it talks a little bit about kind of conflict between kind of IT and security teams, which I've had experience with. I know John's experience with. But what was it that really made you write the book? Where, where did that kind of come from, that drive to do that? Yeah, I so I I think it really this idea behind the book started even when I was on the IT side because when I was on the IT side and started working on security assessments, working with auditors, um, understanding you know more about secure configuration and vulnerability management, and that was from the IT side and and you know feeling that sort of pressure to I've got to do this report, I've got this deadline, I've got to do this all while maintaining my operations environment. You know, I've got SLAs, I need to I have uptime requirements, you know, I have things that are just as important. Um and then when I moved to the security side and seeing very similar pressure, frustration, concern, you know, especially about risk, you know, like, well, if if we don't apply this, then these are the risks. And, you know, the, this sort of um, the really the differences in our missions and our mission and goals and how that sort of leads to conflict. You know, it's like, hey, I can't do this because I have this requirement or this project deadline or this and that and very similar concerns from the security side. And so the idea behind the book was sort of 
how do you even identify that those that conflict exists? Because it's not something we really talk about a lot. You know, it's not like, oh man, you know, I don't get along with uh, Joe because of this reason or this or that. It's, it's it's a lot of like unconscious bias and and perception and a lot of psychology that plays into where those conflicts arise. And so I wanted to sort of address like, hey, some of this comes from the type of job roles we have. It comes from the type of teams that we have. And, you know, it's it's not necessarily that one person's the bad guy and, you know, you know, trying to make your life miserable, but uh, perception can play a big role into how we interact as teams. And then hopefully some advice for how to counteract that, um, you know, in, in organizations. And, um, and I wanted to talk about a little bit too, in the book too, why I wrote it is I think we don't talk enough about the types of job roles that we have now. They've evolved a lot over the years. And I, I think there's still some room for growth. Uh, so I wanted to address that in the book too. Yeah, I, I would have said, I mean, even before security became like a different team, there was always a conflict between even in your own head of, I want to get X done, but we also have to patch. We have to patch servers, switches, routers. We have to do all that work. And that involved downtime. That involved going to the businesses and, and asking for that downtime. It, it involved risk. So I think that conflict has always been there. Even if even if they weren't separate teams, there was still that struggle between keeping the lights on and keeping things secure. And certainly for me, the security head was the one that struggled with the business because it was always really security that said no. The IT team liked to play with technology, liked to mess around and were quite often, yeah, we'll do whatever you like because it's cool. It was the security team that would be going, if you thought about putting a password on that, if you thought about patching that, if you thought about locking that down. And therefore, I think the conflict was there way before there were separate teams. And I think now the fact that they are separate teams, you can kind of have conflict between those teams. And as that evolves and teams grow, when you get more security folks within businesses, I think that conflict's going to grow. I mean, I've certainly, in my career, had to sit down opposite a peer who was working in security and I was working in architecture and say, so you're holding the project up. You're making me th jump through all these hoops. The business is pressuring me. They just want it done. They've got a deadline. I need to get this in next week. And you're telling me I have to jump through all these hoops. So I, I, I lived and breathed that conflict. Um, John, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think you're you're touching on some points there around security. And for me, uh, a lot of it came down to the business having to make a decision between Addressing the technical debt, meaning the patching, the maintenance, the upkeep, the KTLO of the of the the business, and um, then it's you know those revenue generating projects that you know the C suite are making some bets on. You know, hey, if we implement this technology, uh, it may unlock a new revenue stream, or um, this sets us up to you know be x more efficient uh, in selling this widget. There's always these choices between. Do I, you know, maintain the business? Do I, you know, reduce our risk or do I generate more revenue? And I think that's a lot of times where the rub comes in because the business often chooses that revenue generating opportunity over KTLO, over patching, over security. And they keep running down this path until, well, they get hacked or something bad happens. Um, I don't know if that's a, a topic you've addressed in your book and some of the recommendations you have for, you know, more progressive CISOs, people thinking about, hey, we don't want to be the office of no, we want to be the office of yes. Um, can you kind of talk to a little bit about the some of the recommendations? 
Sure. Yeah. So uh, I would say I certainly started recommendations with considering new types of job roles. And I've seen some of these job roles exist, but not in a not in a widespread sort of fashion. I talk about security liaisons, somebody who's there to work between the security team and maybe between the IT teams or the development teams, uh, someone who can speak the language, who can understand where maybe there's uh, some friction or some tension or projects that are stalled or things like that. So someone who can come in and sort of say, all right, I'm essentially a mediator. I understand security. I understand IT or development. And I'm here to talk about what we can do um, to sort of address that and move forward. So I, I love the idea of security liaisons. Um, and then the other, I think, big thing that I sort of add at the end of the book is a questionnaire. And I made questionnaires for different types of job roles and different you know, groups within the organization, because I think the biggest thing that I can sort of give back is every organization is going to be unique. You may have one security person, you may have one IT person, you know, but at least ask yourself these questions and see, does this affect me on a daily basis or a weekly basis? Has it stalled my projects? Has it, you know, increased, um, you know, did we miss deadlines? Uh, did we have increased risk here because we didn't make these decisions? And so it's a, a lot of questions about, you know, talking to yourself, talking to your IT teams, talking to your security teams um, and including psychology and in how you do that instead of just saying, you know, do this thing or, you know, you know, do this now. It's more like, Hey, why didn't this get done? Who did you work with? How well do you work together? You know, is that part of the problem? And so, so hopefully those questions will help teams, management, um, organizations sort of be a bit more introspective and say, it, is this actually increasing my risk? Cause at the end of the day, that's really what the book is about is it's like, Hey, do you have, increased risk because of this tension or frustration between teams. See, I, I want to talk with you a little bit about diversity. I've, I've seen you do on LinkedIn, I've seen you do a lot of stuff for women in tech, and I know it's a, a delicate subject, and we spoke a little bit before we started recording, but I've done things like Myers-Briggs in the past with my team, um, and everyone comes out with the same like personality traits. And they would certainly there were very few females and very few people of color when, when I first started off in IT. And you sit down, you do a Myers-Briggs to try and find out why the team wasn't gelling and then there was this friction. And you'd find that everybody had exactly the same Myers-Briggs outcome. And we did ones with triangles and colors and all of this stuff. And everyone would be a clone. And the trainer would be like, you're rubbing each other up the wrong way because you're all exactly the same and you're all stubborn or you're all egotistical or you're all driven or whatever it might be. And we certainly see that changing. And certainly on the podcast, we're, we're trying to interview people of, of all colors, creeds, and sexes, and, and we get some really great opinions. And one of the things that you just said that made me realize what my girlfriend says to me quite often is, men can be quite like egotistical, and I don't want to generalize, but I'm going to say it anyway. And quite often I'll say to her that there's something going on in work and she's like, you need a woman there to calm the situation down. You need a mediator. You need someone that's not kind of got a chip on their shoulder and not, and it's not, not being egotistical. So what, what are your opinions on that? I mean, it's definitely changing in the world of cyber. Um, but I mean, you've, you've been walking your path for a while now. What have you seen? What has been your experiences? Well, I have to say, I would, I think as far as like diversity goes and sort of my path, my entry into cyber, I would say I've had a ton of really great male allies. I've had a ton of, of great male mentors, people who 
saw either my potential, saw my technical skill or what I was interested in and what I was doing in the community and gave me an opportunity or gave me a chance and, you know, got me my first role in security. So I have to open and say, I've been very fortunate to have and meet lots of great um, technical male allies in the field that ha that have really helped me. And I know speaking with other women in cyber, it's a lot the same. I'm, I may not have had in the past a female mentor, uh, someone, you know, to sort of look up to in the past, but I've, I've been very lucky to have great male mentors that it didn't matter that I was a woman trying to break into cyber. They were like, you're technical. I see your skill, what you're interested in. I want to hire you. I want you to do all of that stuff here. And so, um, so I'll open with that. And I know I was speaking with a lot of other women. It's been the same. I will say though, it is challenging, you know, especially I would say up until recently, not having a lot of uh, female mentors to look up to. And, and so that that's something, especially being in the field for almost 15 years now that I take with me as a responsibility to mentor others, to mentor other young women, to, to help encourage them to, to show them different pathways, like different things that they can do to get into the industry. And I, I think that that's a really important sort of a note for any woman that is already in cyber to sort of take that and, and bring that back to, to younger women to provide them female mentors. Um, but I would say, you know, I think having a great balance in teams, whether that's gender diversity or diversity of thought is really important because it, it's sort of like, you know, you're talking about ego, but we talk about gatekeeping too in cyber. And I think we talk about that because it's like, well, if you don't have an IT background, if you don't have this credential, if you don't have this or that, but I've worked with great people who have financial backgrounds, um, who've come into cyber and have just killed it. They're doing amazing work. So, so I think when we talk about diversity, it has to be in lots of different ways. And I think that's sort of what you're getting into when you're talking about personality tests and having like those same personalities. If you have people with different backgrounds, different education levels, certifications, interests, um, that diversity of thought is also going to help sort of bring one, bring more people into cybersecurity, which of course we always need. Um, but I think also help change that dynamic too. you know, help bring in some new people with different perspectives that maybe didn't come from a traditional IT team. You know, maybe they don't have that. Um, what's the right word? <laughs> like sort of bias of being on a really tough, yeah. you know, male dominated field. Maybe they could come in with, with great perspective and great ideas for uh, sort of breaking the mold. I mean, we, we talk at the moment a lot about zero trust. And for me, a, a zero trust is not just a buzzword. It actually means something. But it does involve having to think completely differently. It does involve having to take kind of the rule book that we've all learned over 25, 30 years and throw it out the window and, and do things differently. And that's not always easy. I mean, I, I've I've worked with so many people that have always said, we do it this way because we've always done it that way. I'm like, what well, doesn't mean to say it's the right way? I mean, we need to we need to kind of shake things up. And what I find quite exciting is having diversity now coming into the workforce, and it's started to really change now. And, and even over the last three to five years, it's changing, brings in these fresh ideas. And I don't just necessarily mean the younger generation, because we've got people pivoting into cyber all ages with all different, like you said, come out of finance, come out of legal, come out of the military, come in with a different mindset and different thinking. And I think we're going to need that for, for zero trust to kind of take off. Um, but I wonder if, are you hearing things about zero trust? Is it something that you 
deal with on a day-to-day basis? Is it something that's like on your radar? I know that the government are doing a lot of stuff on it. So I just wondered what's happening over there in the US. Yeah, zero trust is big. I mean, I would say as far as like probably like big three topics, right? We talk about like quantum computing a lot now. We talk about AI and ML, of course, with like chat GPT. Um, And then then zero trust, right? And for me, zero trust means IAM and IAM strategies, you know, that, that's really what that means to me. Um, But I think zero trust, as far as like, what's going on right now is, it's, we're separating zero trust as a tool, or as something that you can implement into a mindset, a, a program, right? It's a zero trust program. It's not a zero trust setting or configuration. It's a zero trust program. And so I think, if, if we start thinking more about it like that, as a, as having people who focus on zero trust strategy and, and implementation, it's not necessarily going to be for one tool or technology, but up and down the tech stack. And so, so I think that's really what we're seeing now is more people talking about it as this like holistic, I know we use holistic a ton in security, but it is, it's, it's, it's across the entire IT development and security life cycle. So, so I think I hear more about it that way. Um, and I probably, I probably have like a very unpopular opinion about zero trust because I think zero trust, you know, in its essence, right. Is that you trust no one, you verify everyone. Right. And that's great, but you can't trust no one. You have users, you have third parties. So to me, it's about how much do we trust them? How much trust do we grant to them? Do we, do we give them access to, um, you know, or just say, I don't trust you. You can't have any access. But in what world is that possible when we have, you know, so many uh, different organizations we work with? We have globalization. We have, you know, so uh, so I think it's sort of a tough strategy to sort of get our heads around. But I think the idea is start with least privilege and just work up from there. Yeah, I I mean, I have to agree with that. John, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's I think you you guys touched on several points there in the last few minutes. Um, And one of them is. Cybersecurity has got to move beyond just IT. Uh, you know, you talked about a liaison to the business. Um, there was a conversation around, uh, you know, bringing people in that are not traditionally from an IT background, somebody from finance. Um, I think, you know, security has got to move beyond just being IT. And it really has to be embedded into the business. And zero trust is a is a great avenue for that because it's pervasive across of so many silos and and departments within business, finance, um, supply chain, you know, uh, even sales to a certain extent, uh, third-party contractors, GRC, all all of these things need to be addressed. Um, And I'm curious to see, and I don't know where I was going with this question, to be honest with you. Um, I'm curious to see, you know, how do we get IT or, uh, I'm sorry, security uh, beyond just IT. Any recommendations there? Yeah, I think we are starting to see some of that, right? With a lot of the, I would say, like people who are in security that are interested in interested in things like zero trust and, and quantum and how do we leverage AI? How do we do automation? A lot of the automation that's coming with security, I think, is only going to help boost security practitioners into other areas, right? Because it's like, okay, when we can automate some of these things, whether that's patch management, vulnerability management, GRC, if we can automate some of these things, we can actually move into more innovation, creativity, and that only helps the business, right? We can only help to look at a broader set, I think, of 
uh, whether that's product security or R&D, whatever that might be. So I, I think leveraging some of those automation techniques is going to help us to sort of bring us to that next level. You mentioned um, AI, ML, and, and quantum. Um, and I'm curious because they all kind of compete against each other. You know, if you think about the cost to um, launch a, a an attack, a ransomware attack is, is an example of that. It's pretty darn low. Um, I forgot the number, but it's it's I think it's now in the hundreds of dollars to go out on the black market and and buy something and 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 launch it. Um, there's this competitive kind of arms race between, say, the enterprise security folks and the bad actors. Um, do you see? AI ML starting to change that game and, and giving an advantage to, uh, you know, the enterprise uh, security department? And if so, how does quantum kind of, you know, uh, affect either side? So I would love to say yes, right? Like, I'd love to say that, yes, that's a game changer. It's going to help. But the reality is that, you know, a lot of Cyber attacks breaches occur because of really basic, easy to conduct attacks and everything from phishing campaigns to oopsies, I unchecked a box and made my system externally facing. So I would I would say I'd like to say yes, but I, I have to say no, because I think if we can if we can automate, and it doesn't necessarily have to be AI or ML, right? We can use something as simple as a PowerShell script or Python. Um, you know, without leveraging machine learning to to implement some of those like basic cyber hygiene things. I, I think if we can get to that place, then yes, we can leverage AI ML to push us even further as far as like detection and response. Um, but I think if we can get the basics under control, then then we can leverage some of those techniques. So you're bringing up hygiene, and I know you've done a lot of research on vulnerabilities, you know, high critical, high lows. Um what are your thoughts on as recommendations? Uh, you know, if you're a, a CISO out there or somebody in the leadership roles and they have to make decisions, you know, what do I patch? Do I always patch the criticals or should I be patching the the mediums, the lows? Because sometimes the lows creep up and become criticals. Um, any thoughts and recommendations? Because I know you've done a lot of research around this. Yeah, this is this is my favorite question um, because I get I do get this one a lot, right? Which is like, how do I actually prioritize vulnerabilities, right? I would say we're we're getting better, right? At least looking at your highly exploitable vulnerabilities up front that will help give you a better picture. Um, it, does that include every exploitable vulnerability? No, absolutely not. But at least it'll give you an idea of, hey, this is actively exploited right now. The likelihood of this occurring using something like EPSS, the exploitability prediction scoring system, that'll help give you an idea of at least what is the likelihood to me, not just, hey, this is a high vulnerability that any organization would see as a high in their vulnerability, you know, scanning dashboard. It helps give at least a little bit of understanding for, okay, this is exploitable. But I would also say, you know, the, the biggest things, right? Uh, the biggest two things outside of exploitability would be, is it externally facing and who has access to it? And that comes back to zero trust, which is, you know, who are we trusting to access these systems and what is what is actually externally facing, who can get to it? Um, so I think focusing on those at least gives you a pretty good idea of where to start. And then even if you can't, I, I think it's a really important note too, that you don't have to remediate everything. That is not the goal of, of vulnerability management or patch management. But the idea is to get to a place where you're at least 
managing vulnerabilities in an ongoing basis. And I think leveraging a lot of other techniques like network segmentation, uh, micro segmentation, um, you know, leveraging other tools and techniques uh, so that you don't have to patch everything. Um, but hopefully th that would be some good advice where, where people can start. So one of the things that I struggled with in my previous life when I worked for a large manufacturer was getting the downtime window to be able to patch. So we would, we, I mean, we were very lucky. We had a patch window one weekend every month where we could take down all of the infrastructure globally, but not every company can do that. So what is your advice for, for an IT team or a security team that know that they need to patch, but they can't get the company to buy in? What are the mechanisms? And I don't want to scare people, but if you've got a massive compromise and you know, and you've read about it, are there any mechanisms you can use to kind of help get that downtime? Because if you can't reboot the switch or firewall or whatever, you're in trouble. And I see the dog walking around. Oh we'll yeah. She's, yeah, she's in a minute. chewing on something. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it's a bug. Uh, but yeah, I, so I would say as far as like strategies go, if you can't get that maintenance window, right. If you can't take all the systems down, if you can't patch everything in eight hours or something like that, I think building resiliency into those systems needs to be the first conversation, right? What does our high availability high availability look like and why can't we take these systems down? Because that that sort of I start to ask like, well, what's going to happen if we have a ransomware attack? If I can't take these systems down to patch them, what's going to happen, you know, if they get locked out due to a ransomware attack and we have no resiliency, we have no data storage or backups or anything that we can bring these systems back online? I start to, that's that's when I guess I would change the conversation and say, okay, well, what do we do in the event of a cyber attack? What's our incident response plan? Because if, you know, if we don't have backups or a way to, you know, bring systems back online quickly, the business is going to suffer anyway, whether I can patch or not. So, yeah. so to, yeah, so I think, I think the conversation would change at that point and just start asking those questions and say, you know, what can we do in the short term? And then what does, what's our long-term strategy look like? Where can, when can we get to a place you know that maybe we can do this. Maybe we can leverage building um, uh, building images and templates. Maybe we can leverage um, automated patching to a point, but not automated reboots or something like that. You know, so, so start talking about some of those you know more nuanced areas of, of yeah. patch management strategies. But uh, but yeah, I think resiliency is another one of those big topics going on right now in cyber. See, and I I spent a lot of time doing my best to kind of remove single points of failure so that I had the ability of you might have a, a VMware or a hypervisor cluster that you could reboot some of the systems or you would have a back in the day, you'd have a Microsoft cluster, which was always a bunch of fun to deal with or multiple switches and stuff like that. So, and we used to deploy patches and just need to reboot. So you deploy them during the week before they'd all be staged and then you'd reboot. We had test environments so we could test those patches. And it was difficult because just because you test it in a test environment, didn't mean to say it wasn't going to break live. We all knew that. But the risk, we would evaluate the risk and we had a change board and we'd sit down at the change board and go, these are all the vulnerabilities. This is the plan to patch. This is why we've tested, but these are the risks. And obviously it's a lot easier now when it's not sitting on top of physical hardware as much and you've got kind of snapshots, you can do all of these things. But I still hear so much about companies that are like, oh, we can't patch because... We don't want to take that system down. Well, if it gets hacked, it's down. You're going to have a right. problem. <laughs> right. Um, 
I think it comes back to technical debt. I mean, if you're an older company and you've, you know, have a lot of established applications that you're relying upon, um, those are hard things. Uh, they're hard decisions. You've got to work with the application team. They may not want it down. I mean, we got to the point where we did have a declared patch weekend. Um, but then it was like it, it, several of the applications teams were like, well, you know, sun the third Sunday of the month doesn't work for us because of this. Um, and or the the second Sunday doesn't work because of this. And we were like, well, that's awesome, but we don't want to work every weekend. <laughs> it's yeah. that's a lot of drain and, and manpower on um on us. Um, so we got to the point where you know we were pushing for modernization of those applications. Can we go to a container-based solution where we don't have to patch these VMs, uh, these Microsoft type servers? And uh, that's that's the direction we push. So you know, moving more to that digital, that cloud-based uh, native architecture starts to remove some of those impediments, and you don't have to do as much patching in in those environments. But if you're if you've got a lot of legacy. It's it's a hard it's a hard road. So I, I want to pivot a little bit and ask about kind of breaking into cyber. Um, and the reason I like to ask this question is because, funnily enough, none of us really have, and I mean that with the greatest respect. We've grown up through IT into cyber. It's like been a path that we've taken. We haven't jumped straight into a cyber type role, and therefore we, or I believe. We've had the luxury of looking around and you've said, oh, I like vulnerability management. I'll give that a go. I've said, I like this. John said, I like this. So we've been able to kind of dip our toes in the water before taking that leap We because we already knew we were interested. And I truly believe to be motivated and to enjoy life, you need to do a job you like. So nothing's better than being able to kind of trial that job or, or at least know that you're interested in it before you do it. Um, and I'll get to my question in a minute. But if you are trying to break into cyber today, how do you get that experience? I mean, it's not like you can set your heart on being a pen tester, go out and get qualifications, do all that stuff, spend two weeks doing a pen tester and go, oh, I hate this. So what advice would you give people in, in kind of career path? Like if you're breaking in, I still truly believe you need fundamentals. You need to learn the fundamentals. I still think you need networking fundamentals and all of that. But then how do people decide where to go? I'd be just curious what you think. Yeah, no, I, I love this question because um, I I do think it is easier if you're in some sort of technical field already, right? You sort of get an idea of whether that's working with security teams or, you know, maybe meeting people sort of on the other side of the fence, right? And getting an idea of what they do. But I would say um, go to local security conferences. I think that's the best way to be, you can go to any track, right? Like you could go to something, it doesn't have to be DEF CON or Black Hat or anything like that. You can go to a local B-Sides or, um, you know, join a local a local organization like a Women in Cyber or something like that and go to the, some of their meetups. Because the best thing to do is to talk to somebody who's in cybersecurity, right? You can talk to them and say, what do you do? Because um, I didn't have, I know, just speaking for myself, I didn't have a really thorough understanding of the in, I mean, insane amount of domains that there are within cybersecurity, incident response, digital forensics, blue teaming, red teaming, um, GRC, security assessments. And um, so I would say start to actually go to those conferences, learn about a few of the different areas, right? Get, get an idea of what's going on even in the industry, right? Because job roles and types do change a lot in security. So I would say get an idea of what's going on now. And then 
start to network with people, start to meet people on LinkedIn, reach out to them because that's how I've met people and talked with them is just introduce myself and say, Hey, I'm kind of interested in this. Would you have some time? Maybe we could chat and and give me an idea of like what I might be walking into. What is the day in the life of an incident responder? Um, so I would say the best way is to just really meet people and that can always be leveraged into, you know, potentially job roles or, or, you know, actually starting your career in cyber. So I would give the same advice to anyone who's trying to break into cyber as much as they are trying to figure out what they want to do in cyber too, because, you know, I've had, you know, mentees sort of come to me and say, I want to be in security. And I'm like, okay, where, what do you want to do? You know, and they're like, I don't know. I'm like, okay, cool. So here's some resources on incident response versus network defense and, you know, things like that. So that way they can at least get an idea. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say that's the best place to start. I, I think the whole kind of mentee mentor kind of relationships a good one. I, I, my advice to anyone trying to break into to any role really in, in any organization to do in anything is to find someone that's either done it or doing it and to have the conversation and, and trying and find out what, what it means day to day. I mean, I, I, I've jumped across onto the dark side, having spent 25 years doing something else. And I did as much due diligence as I possibly could to figure out, am I going to like doing this? And it's, it's hard. I mean, changing careers later on in life or even your first role is hard. I mean, I remember going to university and having absolutely zero idea of what I wanted to do and just kind of falling into a job. And really my career, like many, I think was, just happened kind of by accident you just kind of fell into it um but i want to ask you a question you, you have your own podcast i believe cyber resilience podcast right or resilient yep. cyber resilient podcast. cyber podcast yep um tell us a little bit about it what what is it and what and why do you do it yeah so uh so uh, chris hughes and i uh co-host the resilient cyber podcast so we uh, right now so we we're on our fourth season we have 80 something episodes now um yeah, so we've been doing it about two and a half years now. And um, so he, Chris actually reached out to me with the idea, you know, a few years ago, and we just sort of built it up from there, decided that we wanted to really interview just lots of people in the industry. We we both have a, I would say, just a very continuous learning mindset, probably like a lot of people in cyber. And we're like, yeah, let's meet cool people and talk to them and ask them a bunch of questions. Um, so, so we do it every Friday um, on LinkedIn Live. Um, we moved to LinkedIn Live this last season, and it's been really fun um, to do it. But we cover everything from zero trust to interviewing CISOs to interviewing people who are breaking into cyber. Um, so we we focus on cyber resiliency more from a hey, you're in cybersecurity. What does it mean to you? You know, what wherever you're at in cyber, what does it mean to you? But uh, but we touch on a lot of different topics. So as we're trying to kick off this podcast, and we're like, I think we're a Almost a year in now, John, right? Yeah, just um, uh, I, I don't know what the date is, but I think, yeah, we've passed Almost a year. a year, maybe a little bit more than a year, 35, 36 episodes released. What would you advise us? Well, how, how do we keep it? For, I'll, I'll ask a more general kind of question. How do we keep it interesting? I mean, we love mm. talking to people. We love having guests on like yourself. But how do we keep it appealing to our audience so that people want to come back and keep listening? Well, I have to say, so each season we've done, it's been a completely different like iteration. We've definitely matured the podcast over time because our first season, I was our editor and we had no video, just audio. 
And so I was spending hours on the weekend editing the podcast and, um, season two, we got an editor, we had someone sort of help us out, but I would say like taking some breaks in between seasons has been really helpful for us to sort of, okay, what do we want to do next season? What can we do differently? And, um, so I would say it's sort of maturing over time. Right. But LinkedIn live has been awesome because we, we use LinkedIn live. We get to interact with the audience now. So we get to take questions, um, and, and bring those into the guests. Um, and then, uh, we get to, you know, stream essentially right to YouTube too. So we're live on two different uh, platforms. And then um, what we're starting to talk about now, which I would certainly recommend as, as you sort of grow over time is to um, consider doing live podcasts, right? Like go to a conference and do a live podcast, go do a meetup at, you know, one of these big conferences or something like that. Um, I, I I think it's sort of a, a, you know, it's sort of a slow build right over yeah. time, but I will say this season, it's been awesome. Um, we've met so many more people and, um, and I would say, just don't be afraid to reach out to people. Like that's one of the things I was afraid to do. And Chris is so good at it. He's like, oh, I just reached out to this person at the cyber national directorate office and they're going to come on the podcast. We had him on last week. He was amazing. Um, so yeah, so I'd say, don't be afraid to reach out to people. I do find that the cyber arena is very friendly. I mean, like we've had you on and I reached out to you and it's really nice that people are happy to give up their time and come on. And to be honest, we are planning to go to RSA and Black Cat and we, we've we already been thinking about kind of doing a fireside chat recording of a podcast. So it, I think that's great advice. Um, before we kind of pivot onto some fun questions, because I have to ask you about the lightsaber and the dog. Um I notice on LinkedIn that you have a raft of certifications. I mean, you, you, I, you've got a couple of PhDs, you've got all kinds of stuff that you've studied and, and, and I've loved to study throughout my career, but I know that certifications are a big thing that's talked about at the moment. And I certainly did it a long time ago. I did like MCP, MCSE, v, um, the VMware stuff. And I, did certifications not to get myself a job or not to get myself any more money, but because I just love to learn. And for me, whatever it is I'm learning, whether it's learning to scuba dive or drive a car or whatever it might be, I I, I like to prove by taking an exam that I've I've learned it. But I'd be interested to know on what why are you passionate about learning? Because clearly you are. But also, what do you think about the whole kind of certification discussion about you must have a CISP for an entry-level job and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I'll take this in a couple different angles, right? The, the first I, I want to start with is you don't have to have certifications to have the skills, right, to be able to do whatever job you need to do um, in, in cyber. I will say as someone who was pivoting into cyber, these certifications were really critical for me to be able to show that I had this, the security chops essentially to, to yep. get a role into security. Um, but I don't think you have to have them to do the job, but caveat, there are a lot of job roles that still require them. So it's tough for me to say, well, you don't need certifications. If you're going for a certain job, you may need that certification and not necessarily because you have to, you know, you, you have to have those essential skills or something for whatever role you're doing, but it may be required depending on the type of, of job you're doing. Um, you know, if you want to be competitive as a web app pen tester, you might have to go for OSCP. 
that will be a differentiator on your resume, you know, to other people who don't have the certification. So I would say if you're having a tough time breaking in to cybersecurity, maybe consider one of those entry-level certs, anything like Security Plus, right? You can start with Security Plus, yeah. which is relatively inexpensive, especially compared to like CISSP and some of the others. Um, so I would say maybe start with an entry level. You could even start with like an AWS Cloud Fundamentals uh, certification. It doesn't have to be security specific, but if you can show that you've got some technical skills and, and you know leverage an entry level cert like that, you know you can potentially open a door to something else. So, you know you don't have to have have certifications, but you might have to have them depending on the type of role that you want. Yeah. Um, and then I would say. As far as like learning, um, I love having a goal, like though, though having a goal in mind for me, like I'm just one of those very goal oriented person, uh, people. And so, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to work towards this cert next. It helps me really focus on a topic. Cause otherwise I'm like, I want to learn this and this and this and that. And so it helps me really focus. And so I say, um, you know, for anyone else that's like that, that feels sort of scattered. If you pick one cert and you stick with it, it'll at least keep you sort of focused on like learning something really in depth um, before moving on to something else. I think that's good advice. I, I, I mean, like I said, I've loved to learn over the years and really because I like to know that I've completed something. Um, but we're we're slowly running out of time. So I'm going to ask you, I have to ask you, I watched you on... Um, infosec live event the other day and you said um my dog's eating my lightsaber or something yeah. those lines. and i was like that is the weirdest like response to anything i've ever heard yep what yeah. kind of dog is it and and why was it why firstly why was it eating your lightsaber and why have you got a lightsaber well you know that great question um so i have an australian shepherd puppy um she's about five months old uh, so I, we're, we're just getting out of the like newborn puppy phase, you know what I mean? Yeah. So she's really like a toddler right now. So she's very much into knocking stuff over and chewing on it to see, you know, is this edible? Um, and so anyway, I have my two lightsabers from Disney world, got those last year. And, um, so I had my two lightsabers on the counter and she just ran over and like knocked them on the ground and figured out how to turn them on. So like in the background, I'm hearing like the lightsaber noises and stuff. And I was like, oh, this, you know what? We're just gonna, we're just gonna go for it. You know, we're just gonna go. Um, but yeah, I, um, yeah. So she's an Australian shepherd. Um, and, um, yeah. And that's why I have lightsabers because they're fun and cool. Um, yeah. They are cool. I mean, I All remember right, so the story of Samuel Jackson wanting a purple one and saying he wouldn't be in the film unless he had a purple lightsaber. Oh um, yeah. But John, I know you've got some. Yeah. So so let's let's talk Star Wars. Um, let's uh, let's just say favorite movie, and it could be any one of the you know the the multiple trilogies or any of the other movies. Which one is your your favorite? Okay, so if if we if I have to go movie and not TV show, because I'm going to say the... movie, I'm going to say okay. movie first, and then it okay. can be TV show. Okay, so I would have to say Return of the Jedi. I mean, it's just it's a classic. It's yep. I mean, it's really where I fell in love with Star Wars. So uh, I I just I have to say that's really where I started. But I will say I I do love the newer ones with the Ray storyline. Like I, I really yeah. love those. Um, but but yeah, Return of the Jedi. I mean, it has to be right. It's the best one. I, I, I actually Empire was mine. Um, okay, that's the movie. I, I didn't as a kid. It was like eh. as an adult, you're like, oh, that's a that's a good one. Uh, the other one is Rogue One. Love it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, Rogue One was really good. Yeah, that was great. 
I think you definitely see them differently between being a child and being an adult. Def- definitely. I mean, I watched them when I was younger and I watch them now. I definitely see the story differently. And my girlfriend has a daughter and we sat down and watched them. Obviously, I made her watch them when she was like seven or eight. And and she definitely sees them differently now. She's 20, which is very different. Um, But yeah, so best show, I guess, or best series or movie not movie animated live yeah oh yeah it i have to say mandalorian i love i love the storyline i love what they've done with it um i love grogu like they just they really i feel like captured a lot of the magic from the original sort of star wars films from the 80s as far as like you know we had um we had adorable ewoks and like they were so cute and now we have grogu and he's so cute and like so um uh, I I think they did such a great job with the storyline too. Um, I feel I feel like they they're doing they're doing it in such a different way now, but it but still in a nod, you know, to the older films. So I, I think they've done a good job balancing that. Do you do you want to make a prediction on Grogu? Does he does he break bad at some point? Okay, if I'm yeah, if I'm if I think absolutely at some point, I think he will potentially lean towards the dark side but i think that's going to be like a really interesting if they decide to sort of go that route i think it's going to be really interesting i can't wait we'll have to come back and have another conversation when it yeah when we'll it just do out. star wars next time that's what we can do <laughs> perfect um but I, I can't go on a podcast without asking about food um and i kind of pivoted this question i used to say to people what was the best food you've had but now I like to ask, what's your best food experience? Because a lot of people say it's more about the experience than the actual meal. Um, so I guess what has been your best food experience? Oh, that's a good one. Best food experience. So I would say the restaurant is closed down now, but there was a Morimoto's in New York City. And um, that restaurant, not only was the food amazing because it's Morimoto um, from Iron Chef, uh, but the, I have to, if, if you've, if you had been to the restaurant before it closed down, this comment won't seem weird, but out of context, it will seem weird. Um, <laughs> it had the most incredible bathrooms. Like, so the food was great, right? Food's awesome. But anyone that went to that restaurant, they had like infinity mirrors and the floors were all like the way they, however they designed it, whatever architect like in designer they had in there, it was amazing. So, um, so yeah, so it's a food experience and just in general, like the food was amazing. I would go back to Morimoto's anytime. Um, but yeah, that restaurant in general was just really cool. Are you based in New York then? Uh, no, I'm uh Maryland based in Maryland. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so John, I'll let you ask the last question before we wrap. No, I was just going to comment on our Marimoto's. Uh, my kids found one of their his restaurants in Hawaii, and nice. uh, it was like every night, go back, go back, go back. They they it's absolutely so good. loved it. It was <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It, it, uh, I don't know of him, right? Japanese? What? You, you, he you was ever he was Iron on the Chef? original. He was on the original Iron Chef too, yes. and then Iron Chef America. I we don't I don't know what that is. It, oh my gosh, Jay, we need to introduce you to Iron Chef. I mean, it, it's. Uh, basically a food competition where you bring in chefs and they have, I think it's 60 minutes to cook and they have to go and rush to a table. And there's like a secret ingredient or not a secret ingredient, but a a main ingredient. And it could be like um, potatoes or it could be a lobster or, and, and and it's, it's started off as this campy Japanese show. And then it caught fire in the United States and food channel now features it. But 
It's uh, yeah, we need to get you to to okay. watch a few of we, those. We have uh, something I'll... like MasterChef. We have, and I think it sounds similar. It, this was the original version of you yeah. know whatever has become all like these food, food competition shows. Yeah, it was like the yeah. original. Yeah, because yeah. you have a Hell's Kitchen as well, right? We do. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. This is without the um, all the anger. <laughs> He's a very angry man. Um, okay, so I guess it's time to wrap. I mean, I can't believe the time's flown so so quickly. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for being on as a guest. Thank you for all your insights. And 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 thank you for advice on how to make the podcast last. I mean, we love doing it. We we I mean, we love the fun questions. We love the technical questions. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.